0: Hello everyone. Welcome to JCB Art Studio. My name is Joanna and I am the author of Dealer's Child and The Unraveling. I'm just getting over a cold. I've been doing well. I went for my first run walk with the dogs this morning and that felt so good. And I'm very I'm very I'm curious and I'm excited to chat with today's guest. Okay, Danielle Sibolski. she's a critically acclaimed medieval history author. Now, she has been researching and writing about the Middle Ages for over a decade. She is the author of The Five-Minute Medievalist and is a feature writer at medievalist.net a former college professor and specialist in medieval literature and Renaissance drama. Her work has been published across international magazines, spanning topics from the Hundred Years War to Roman togas. Her mission is to make history fun, entertaining, and engaging, as well as to draw attention to our shared human nature across centuries. And uh, so many questions. Okay, today we are going to talk about her book, How to Live Like a Monk. Danielle, welcome.
1: Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Good. Now, you're a podcaster too, aren't you? Yes, I have two podcasts right now. I have the Medieval Podcast and a new one called Extra Medieval. Okay, so what... what If I was to tune in, what what I'm learning about medieval history? Yes, that's right. So the medieval podcast is one that's just open to the public. And on it, I interview an expert on all sorts of different topics. So we've done like laundry and pigs and war and all of those things. And then on Extra Medieval, it's just me talking about stuff. And that's a subscriber-only podcast for people who want even more medieval stuff in their lives. Oh, that sounds fascinating. Okay, I will, I will check,
0: I'll be checking it out. Okay, so your book, I've been telling a few of my friends, you know, that I'm going to be interviewing you, How to Live Like a Monk, and their ears just all perk up, okay, And, and they want to know more. First, what I was wondering was, what did you see? Like, I'm just thinking of our world as it is now. What did you see in our world now, or what was it that made you want to write How to Live Like a Monk?
1: Well, this idea was pitched to me by the woman who became my editor at Abbeville Press, Lauren Orthy, and she had the idea of bringing together Uh, medieval history and then what we know about wellness and this was really exciting for me because when I'm not working on medieval history I'm reading about wellness I'm really interested in psychology and all of the scientific work that's being done on on our human nature I'm really interested in that so when I had the opportunity to bring these things together was very exciting for me and as I was writing it I was writing it during much of the lockdowns and as I was going through it It really made me get in touch with the fact that a lot of the strategies that monks were using to keep themselves healthy, to accomplish their mission of of becoming the best that they could be at their work, it was also very familiar in that I was using a lot of those strategies to keep myself sane, to keep myself centered. It's a lot of the strategies that I had taken in and learned over the years. So it became a very personal book and it brought together a couple of my deep interests. Okay, cause I remember lockdown, and I've
0: it's interesting because after reading your book, I thought back to what I did, you know, um, I don't want to say for survival, but for my health, my mental health and wellness. And I mm. remember one of the things I really enjoyed was the early morning taking the dog and just going for a run. And there would be no one around. And there was something very, I don't want to say spiritual, but there was just something very calming about that. Okay. Okay.
1: So, yeah, that's one of the easiest places, I think, to get into. It's the place where I start the book, but... One of the easiest places to get in touch with that sort of monastic feel, that feel of peace, is to see something green. It's just to put yourself in a green space. And scientists have found like even looking at a fake plant will make you feel better, will make you feel calmer. So it it makes total sense that going for a run in nature is going to make you feel calmer. That's just part of our human nature. And monks built that into their cloisters. They always had a green space in the middle so that they could always be in touch with nature even when they were enclosed. Okay, so then that because I I just about three weeks ago I planted a bunch of pansies
0: and I referred to them and I gave them some nutrients, you know, and I now when I see them because I see them just throughout the house, I refer to them as my happy pansies because they look so happy. <laughs> okay, <laughs>
1: all right. Yes, yeah, it, it makes total sense and it's supported by scientific research. Okay, okay. Now, just
0: getting into live like a monk it's educational um, cuz you write that there were many types of clergy in the medieval times mm. um mm-hmm. and you you talk about two basic categories of clergy can you explain those categories to us
1: yes it's a really good question and one i rarely get asked okay so there is a secular secular clergy which are the people who live in the world so these are priests bishops archbishops, uh, canons, people who are or deacons, people who are working within the world. So they're not living a cloistered life. And then there's the regular clergy. So these are people who are monks and nuns and even some friars. Friars are a little bit different. So monks are meant to be enclosed. They're not meant to wander around, whereas friars are meant to go out and and preach, but they live by a rule. So regular means you're living by a rule. So secular, that's your priests who are preaching out there, parsons, things like that. And regular are monks and nuns who are supposed to be living in enclosed communities.
0: Okay, okay, all right. Now, also you mention in your book about the word monastery, Mm -hmm. and you say, Monastery wasn't in the Middle Ages used specifically for a male-only house of religious people. So, women would they wouldn't have a would they have their own form of a monastery?
1: Yeah, so right now we tend to think of monastery as a place for monks and a convent as a place for nuns. But you can use the word monastery, or you did use the word monastery in the Middle Ages. Same with abbey to mean either a place of monks or nuns and sometimes a place where we were both living. And they wouldn't be living together, they would be living separately, but on the same grounds, following the same rules probably ministered to by the same bishop, for example. And sometimes when you had these two communities together, not exactly co-ed, like I said, they're not living like cheek by jowl, they're living in two separate places. But often the person who would be in charge of that would be an abbess instead of an abbot, which is really exciting. So in a way, do they have like equality? Well, no. Okay. (laughs) No, not really. And I think a vital part of that, when it comes to monastic communities, is women could not be priests. So even if you had a, a convent, as we would say it today, just a group of nuns working together, living together, you would still have to have a priest come in and take confession and give mass. They couldn't they couldn't do that themselves because they were not permitted to become priests. They couldn't be ordained. Yeah, and that's one thing. Even now, which
0: um, I've been raised Catholic. I think women should become priests. I shouldn't, you know, and I, I'm also think that priests should also be allowed to marry. Okay. So that's just my, my own personal view. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, I would like to get into some of the steps of living like a monk. And we kind of, we kind of t- we touched upon this where It just, when I was going through the book and I saw Find Your Soul Patch. And I just, Mm -hmm. I loved that. So, can you explain about Finding Your Soul Patch? (laughs)
1: <laughs> this is a little bit of a pun on the fact that you know you have a little goatee quota soul patch but <laughs> this whole, the whole soul patch in this case is the cloister garth so the garth is that green space in the middle of the cloister the buildings are built around it so that the monks don't have to leave but they will always have that green space and they were meant to cross it when they needed to go to church when they were going back to their dormitory so they would cross it all the time and usually this was a lawn so it was nice and neat but it also had lots of plants in it, and a lot of the plants were very meaningful. You might have a mulberry tree or juniper bush, and then you might have some medicinal plants either in that cloister garth or elsewhere on the grounds. And those medicinal plants would be things that would be helpful to you for for small complaints, like chamomile is supposed to be calming, and mint is supposed to be healthy as well. And so you would have these also on the grounds. So it was important to them. They felt that green space would refresh their eyes, especially. It's not as if they were living in caves. They did have candles and torches and daylight and all that stuff. But they felt like if you were working on something that was a lot of fine detail or you had to look very closely, like working on a manuscript or something like that, this green would refresh your eyes. And so science has borne this out, like we were talking about to refresh yourself. It only takes about 30 seconds in nature or looking at nature to make yourself feel a little bit better. So this is actually very wise. And it's, it's interesting to me. It was built into the center, into the heart of the monastery. Okay.
0: So then also I think of it, as you were talking, I'm, I'm thinking, of it, thinking of it as a way of almost like connecting to the earth. You know, like, Mm -hmm. seeing the green space, you know, getting away from the technology, getting just Mm -hmm. giving yourself a break.
1: Yes, because we remember that monks, their whole thing is to get in touch with God, right? And so nature is the best way of doing that. Because for monks, everything started with the Garden of Eden. So to get close to God is to get into nature, even if you're enclosed. Okay. So that makes me feel better because why I'm saying I'm asking is because
0: when we moved here, um, in my backyard, you know, it's the house was built and we're landscaping. And there I I I was I was certain that the neighbors were wondering what I was doing. There was this massive, massive rock. In our backyard, and I, I just, I'd look at it, and I'd, I'd see, like, I like creating art, so I liked seeing the colors in this rock. And the more I weeded, I'd find more and more of this rock. And I thought, why is this covered up, right? And then as I weeded more and started to pull more off, I could pull almost like a layer of this of weeds and and you know stuff off this rock. And now you see all these layers of rock. And I just, I remember thinking at the time with the neighbors on either side of me, they were probably thinking, what is she doing? But I feel <laughs> like I've uncovered something, right? So mm. maybe it seeing the, the beauty in different forms of nature. Yeah, okay. it's
1: legit. Okay. It's a, it's a thing. It's a real thing. Good. <laughs> you can uh, feel good about it.
0: Good. Okay. So you had mentioned about Cinnamon meal, you know, um, greens. Getting your greens in. Uh, In the book, you list herbs, you know, like cilantro, Mm. mint, thyme, saffron, and you also write the rule of Saint Benedict: abstain from meat of quadrupeds, and it doesn't have anything to do with being. uh, kind to animals. Can you ex- explain that rule and the,
1: the the significance of it? So so what you pulled down is a rule that I think is so medieval that it might be difficult for people to access unless you talk it through. So Saint Benedict who wrote the rule for Benedictine monks, upon which many other rules were based and from which he took a lot of inspiration to, to build the perfect monastic rule. This one is one that's being used still by Benedictine monks today. So it's a very important rule. But in it, he mentions you should abstain from the meat of quadrupeds as much as possible. And this is because quadrupeds, they reproduce by mating in the same way that humans do. So quadrupeds are sexy <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> because, you, because they have uh, the same type of sex that humans do in order to reproduce. And if you're a monk, you are taking a vow of chastity. You want to be thinking as little as possible about sex. So you're not supposed to really be concentrating on quadrupeds. So this is not about kindness as much as okay. it's about not thinking racy thoughts at the dinner table. So instead you should be eating things like fish or eels who do not reproduce in the same way as humans do so they won't give you any sexy thoughts at the dinner table.
0: Okay. Well, that kind of throws the idea out out the window about oysters, right? Because <laughs> it wasn't, it's an, oh, <laughs>
1: about oysters being aphrodisiac. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. perhaps, perhaps. I don't think they were eating a lot of oysters at the table, but they were definitely eating eels, and we still don't know how eels reproduce. No one has ever seen this happen. There's a a great medievalist called John Wyatt Greenlee who works on eels, and he's fascinated by this and how they show up in things like monastic texts as being a reason why you should eat eels because we don't know how they reproduce. Oh, wow, okay. I had no idea. Okay. okay. <laughs> this is what I mean. It's kind of obscure.
0: Yeah. Okay. And like I said, the your book, so many of the I guess I'd call them z- subheadings, just, mm-hmm. you know, resonated with me, you know, like there's one, rest your bones, you know, and mm-hmm. um the other one that I liked was make space for yourself. And y- yeah. you you talk about minimalism, and mm-hmm. um, yet you also t- mentioned that with the monks they have, you know, there's a photograph of a beautiful chalice, you know, for mat for mass. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I was wondering, make space for yourself. Um, what what would you recommend for people to do? if in terms of in in this world where we have i would say you know we have social media and i feel sometimes so much coming at us what mm. what what are you thinking about when you say make space for yourself
1: well there is a bunch of things that you've touched on that are in that section one of them being minimalism and i think it's healthy to to surround yourselves with the things that make you feel good, right? This is Marie Kondo's idea. Does it spark joy? Or is it just taking up room in your house? And if it doesn't make you feel good, if it doesn't lead you towards your goals, then you don't really need it. And this is what monks were thinking as well. If we don't need this for our goals, we don't need it necessarily. But part of making space for yourself in in terms of monks was creating a place for themselves that was beautiful. So as you mentioned, the chalice is gorgeous. This was also, a way to revere god so it was these things were not necessary like a monk would own a chalice they weren't really supposed to own things they were just supposed to 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 share things and use them as much as they needed to but you might have a chapel or you might have tile floors that were very beautiful and all of these things were meant to continue to help you think about god so In the same way that people use vision boards now to keep them on track, monks had pictures of Jesus that would remind them that this is their mission, this is what they're here for. So when I think about making space for yourself, it's clearing out the clutter that's getting in your way, but it's also surrounding yourself with the things that inspire you, and that's what they're doing as well. And when you're talking about social media, I think it's related. So St. Benedict was somebody who really believed in silence in the monastery so there were times when you could speak but even when you were speaking it was still supposed to be about god and divinity so you weren't really supposed to be chattering and this was because it would distract you from your mission you are there for one reason and that is to serve god the best you can so to actually live as a monk takes a lot of effort it was difficult not everyone did it but what we can take from it is that when we surround ourselves with things that don't point us in the direction of our goals or if we surround ourselves with kind of mindless chatter of social media it's not inspiring to us. it's just dragging us down And that is stuff that we could easily release and feel better doing.
0: That's so true. that is so true because I'm on I'm on Instagram and Facebook and mm-hmm. I'm finding with my Instagram it was almost like when I had hardly any followers. I I enjoyed it more because I saw more (laughs) pictures, but now Instagram is changing and I'm seeing more advertisements and I'm just like, no, stop, stop, right? Like, And I wonder Mm -hmm. if people will get to a point where it's almost like we have social media burnout, where we just, it's like, it's not, I don't find social media fulfilling. Do you think
1: we'll mm-hmm. ever get to that point? I think individually, a lot of people are getting to that point. Yeah. It's difficult because those particular platforms are designed in a way that is meant to just feed our dopamine response, for example, and, and keep us infinitely scrolling. So they are designed to to entrap us by using our minds uh, against us in some ways to keep us there to keep the machine moving and. That is, I mean, I don't have anything against social media yeah. per se, but it can be unfulfilling. So I used to be on Twitter a lot, I had a really good community there, and I would go for colleagues' work, or very smart people making great jokes, but that has changed, the character of Twitter has changed, and so I was finding it was dragging me down. Yeah. So I switched it out for Duolingo and <laughs> go back into my French, which I had neglected for a while, and I do find that more fulfilling because I don't feel like I'm being fed bad news or complaints all the time. I did feel like that was taking a toll on me. And this yeah. is reason this is like much later than having written the monk book but having having practiced many of the things that I write about in the monk book. It's easier for me to see where I might be getting distracted from my goals or where I might be getting dragged down by things I don't want to be. So it's maybe easier to recognize once you start. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I think Individually, people. I think that there are a lot of people who are kind of leaving social media for these reasons.
0: Yeah. See, and I also remember when I used to work full time at the prosecutor's office. I had mm-hmm. a twenty-five minute. This was in Nanaimo. A twenty-five minute commute, and I remember I would get in the car, and I'd have the radio off, and I would just drive home mm-hmm. in silence, and. Mm-hmm. And then when with my husband, you know, two different characters, when he would get in the car and we'd start to go somewhere and the radio would be off, he'd be like, it's too quiet in here, you know, and he turned the radio on. And it's just, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I told him how by having the silence, it was a way that I could de-stress, you know, after working Mm -hmm. during the day. And he Mm -hmm. finds that he needs to have always something in the background a bit, right? So, okay. Mm -hmm. So, the other thing I was struck by uh, was the fact that, now this kind of, this might tie in a little bit. It's just, when I was reading it, there were so many things that I could find on a personal level. For example, when the monks took vows, uh, you write Mm -hmm. that their community shrunk down to a handful of people, Okay. Um, people who had the same values, who performed the same duties. And, um, mm. what I'm finding is I joke with people and I, and I say, I have five truly good friends. Okay. And, yes. you know, sometimes yes. I'll be teased and I'll be, people will say, Oh, only five. And I'm like, Yeah. Like, like, really five, and I remember (laughs) I'd hold up my hand, and at one time I think I only had four, and I said, "Well, there's a my pinky." I'd look at my pinky, I say, "Well, there is a vacancy. (laughs) I don't know who's taking that (laughs) yet, right? You know." But yes, and then I have acquaintances. Okay, so do you find sometimes that? Then this is strictly opinion. Okay, this is strictly opinion. You find sometimes (laughs) that people get too involved with the number of friends they have, and are they actually true friends?
1: Yeah, well, I was thinking when you were talking about this that you call them true friends probably because they support you. They support you in your goals and in your values, and they are the people that make you a better person, right? Yeah. Yeah, and so monks were like this too, where you would spend a year where you are a novice and you weren't allowed to join the community fully you wouldn't take your vows because for that year everyone was testing each other out to see if you'd be a good fit because a bad apple right a bad apple will spoil the whole barrel and they knew that you could have a, a community where everyone is trying to you know row in the same direction could really be disrupted by someone who was not so they really carefully vetted the people who are going to be joining their communities. And I think something that might surprise people is that you could leave or you could be expelled and you could be forgiven, but only three times. So that at a certain point, even these very forgiving monks would say, no, you are disruptive to our community. You're not changing and we are better off without you in it. And so I think that that's a really important lesson. That even when you have compassionate and forgiving people, you need to set boundaries (laughs) because you can't have a community that is going to pull you back, especially for monks when they are doing their best on a mission from God, right? They can't be held back. And I think it's a lesson we can still learn today, even if our goals are smaller, you know, that there are some people that might be holding you back and you really have to be careful who you let into that circle, who your community is. And there's absolutely... No shame in having a small group of people if these are the people that make your life better. Yeah. And and I'm thinking about (laughs) I'm thinking about my five.
0: (laughs) You know, but they're you know, you mentioned about goals and Mm. one individual was someone I worked with, actually two of them I worked with at the prosecutor's office. So it's it's almost like a high stress situation where we just, mm-hmm. we backed each other up. Okay. And, um, mm-hmm. r- and also writing friends who, you know, therefore they're, they are there for me, but I also want to reciprocate and be there for them too. So, uh, mm-hmm. okay. Okay. that That's interesting. And that ties into, like you said, goals and, and I think mutual respect as well
1: yes and the things that you're talking about are doing hard things together and like i said Mm -hmm. actually living like a monk is hard you're getting up in the middle of the night you're eating the same stuff every day you have to be silent all the time like it's an arduous life and it's meant to be because it is meant to be the ultimate kind of service to god but In, you know, a lesser way, perhaps you're doing very difficult things with people who are also doing very difficult things, like working as attorneys or writing, which is hard. And having that support from other people who understand the ins and outs is really important. And they're the monks, their minimalism.
0: I, whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Again, I had mentioned to my husband about this, this podcast Uh and living a minimalistic lifestyle, and he goes, "We do not live minimalistic." <laughs> you know, like he goes, "Compared to a monk, we're not even on the same, you know, <laughs> same
1: scale." So yes, well, but- it's meant to be extreme, and you, if you've read the book, which it seems you've done very thoroughly, you know that sometimes they snuck things in, even pets, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because it's a very difficult thing to to live that extremely minimalist.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: and that that's the devotion
0: Mm -hmm. also um you know because there was like one of the other ones actually we're going i'm jumping ahead a little bit was you mentioned about raise a glass every Mm -hmm. once in a while Mm -hmm. and uh they would they would make wine wouldn't they yes Yeah. yeah and In moderation, would they have a little, like I thought I read that they would have a certain type of wine or did I read that wrong?
1: No, no, no. Um, I think what you're thinking about is a couple of different things. One is that you had to have wine for communion. So in some places where you didn't have grape vines, you might have things like, I think it was mulberry wine that I mentioned in the book. So you needed to have wine. You couldn't just replace your communion drink with water or anything like that. So that's what I think you're talking about. They did have a lot more alcohol than than we do. Um, And this is a cultural thing. It's not because they didn't drink water. They also drank water, but it's a cultural thing to drink wine and drink beer. And St. Benedict in his rule says, we've told everyone not to drink wine, but because monks cannot live that way, there's too many complaints, then you can have some, but have it to moderation. Now, beer is what they would mostly have, ale, um, it didn't have hops for most, most of the Middle Ages, so they'd have ale and it was less alcoholic and it was more nutritious. So it wasn't it wasn't as alcoholic as we we have. Now that said, they drank a lot of it. Yeah. <laughs> so they had a ration and they drink every day. Okay. Well it's
0: like this morning, I'm I'm totally thinking about what I do. Okay. <laughs> and yeah. um uh, you know, I'm, I'm boiling water and squeezing lemon, like lemon juice from the real lemon, because like I said, I'm getting over this cold. Mm-hmm. But then I'm not giving up my coffee in the morning. <sighs> and I'm thinking, okay, moderation, everything in moderation. You don't right. drink three cups of coffee a day, right? I just mm-hmm. have that one in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, Now, can you give examples? Because another section of the book is all is about setting aside time to unwind yeah and since i have left government mm-hmm. and i'm writing full time that believe it or not is a hard one for me ah <laughs> uh, partly you, you know like again my husband said to me you're writing on the weekend i thought it was like during the week you're going to do all your writing
1: mm-hmm. you know
0: and i'm thinking well i don't want to watch tv you know, mm. I, 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 there's not anything on there that I really interested in at the moment. So it's crazy that I find it harder to unwind and not work, work, work at my <laughs> writing now that I'm retired. So can you, <laughs> can you give examples from like, sure. how did the monks unwind?
1: Yeah. Okay. So there's a couple of things that you're bringing up, which I think are really great. And one of them is that everything should be in moderation, including moderation. So this is Oscar Wilde's quote, but I think it was something that, that monks also believed in. You could let your hair down sometimes on some feast days and drink more than you normally would, for example. You did get involved in things like there are even spiritual games, right? There's one that Max Harris talks about in in one of his books where the monks or people in a cathedral school would go around a labyrinth, right? Singing a holy song. And this would be a game that they would perform. They had to relax. And in fact, this was one of the surprising things that I came across in in the book and the research I was doing for it, where because it was austere, because this suffering was meant to be a gift to God, I thought they would say, like, constantly be suffering. Because if you look at some of saints' lives, They are suffering and they are saints because of it. Mm -hmm. But monastic writers said you must slow down and you can't be overzealous. And they point to instances. There's this one monk called Caesarius who mentions a few instances where somebody was told to slow down. He's being too devout. He's being too austere and ended up being suicidal. So they were saying like, you need to rest sometimes because God needs you to do this work over the long term. So, yeah, so it's it's very wise <laughs> and it's something we all need to remember because in this life that we are living, we are encouraged to work all the time. We are encouraged to work until we burn out. Yeah. And, you know, even a thousand years ago, people were saying, you will burn out and you won't be useless and you won't be very useful. You'll be useless. You'll need to take time off and recover. So instead, just give yourself some leisure time up front. And I think what's a little bit funny is, uh, for their health, monks would would have bloodletting every once in a while. And this was meant to balance the humors. It's based on an old, actually ancient style of medicine. Mm-hmm. But when you had your bloodlet, because it's not the easiest thing, and if you've donated blood, you know, you can feel a little weak afterwards.
0: Mm-hmm. That
1: would be a time when you'd be resting in the infirmary with your friends and just kind of hanging out, not doing the regular work that you would normally do. So this was a time that was like worked in where you would be resting and then they say sometimes monks who work too hard who overworked themselves would have a form of depression called acidity and they would say they this is something really normal where they're living this life it's very hard to not getting enough sleep and you start to feel depressed and they say if this happens if you have a brother that is feeling this acidity They should go to the infirmary and they should take a couple days off so that they can come back renewed and refreshed and ready to work. So it can be tempting when you're devoted to something like like your service to really go too far and work too hard, but you can't sustain that. And people knew this, you know, even a millennium ago that you do need to rest so you don't burn out.
0: Wow. Okay. <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> so your husband is right. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. oh, I will, it doesn't oh. have to be TV. You can start gardening now. <laughs> yes. Yes. <Okay. laughs> the weather is changing.
0: See, and I would I haven't created any art lately. Mm-hmm. And that was one thing when I created art, you know, I have I it's it's marker art. It's
1: that art.
0: Yeah. And my it's almost like Everything would leave my brain, okay? Mm-hmm. and i would I'd either listen to a podcast mm-hmm. or i'd I'd work you know as I'm working on my art, but it was it's like time stopped. It was I, I have to not not have to I'm not going to say the word have to, but
1: mm-hmm. I will
0: definitely get back to creating more art. Okay.
1: Yes, it's it's valuable. I think that it's so easy to take in this idea from our society today that saying taking time for yourself is not valuable. It's selfish. It's unproductive. When really, when you come back to your writing after doing your art, I'm sure you will be rested and perhaps more creative. Yeah. So, how did you find it writing this book? Did you did you find
0: it um, mm. difficult? challenging did you were there times when you had to take step a step back like talk to me how was the writing process for you
1: it is always a challenge you know what it's like writing can be challenging the challenge for this book was how to bring these two philosophies together so monks thought that you were to do these things like Taking care of yourself, perhaps, or leaving a living a minimalist lifestyle in service to God. And a lot of their thoughts were that you were innately sinful. So, mm. you know, you are meant to be giving your life up to God because you are a sinner. Yeah. Okay. But in modern psychology, we're thinking, you know, you need rest, not because you have to serve God, not because you're sinful, but because you are worth it as a human being and you are just worthy as you are. And so these two philosophies sometimes contradicted each other okay. even though that the the advice that they gave that psychologists might give and that monks might give even though it's the same the philosophies might differ so that was that was challenging sometimes to bring those two things together but it was a good reminder going through the the modern research about what is healthy for us and <laughs> reminding myself okay well you know i need to take a break from this or i need to go outside or sometimes it's difficult as a human because you know what's good for you and you don't want to do it because you just want to finish this chapter you know yeah. so so even having all this advice in front of me sometimes i didn't follow it but yeah. overall it was a good book to write it was a validating book to write because much of my work has always been showing people or, or trying to show people how similar we are to these people who lived a long time ago. And I really always want to show these people as humans. They're not caricatures. They're not cartoons. They're not people who are just living in mud and blood all the time. They are humans with a rich, rich life. And I was able to do that, I think, because the comparisons between what is healthy for you know an 8th century monk and what is healthy for a 21st century person it's the same things so that was validating and it was joyful to bring those two things together
0: well it's and it's in, it's interesting uh, uh, like you've how you've merged the history with today's times and like that it, it is it is very interesting because like i said you know, this morning, I'm walking around and I'm kind of reassessing what I'm doing. You know,
1: know. okay, so Uh, Well, yes, that has been one of the, the most rewarding thing of having done this book is sometimes people write to me and say, you know, I was reading this book about monks and stuff, and it actually has brought me more peace. And like, as a historian, you never think that this is going to be something that you can achieve is to help people live more peacefully. But this Book has has helped people in ways that I didn't expect, it and I'm just really grateful for. Good, good. Now,
0: I have to ask because you near the near the end, you say Saint Benedict wouldn't like this book. Yeah, so, that's
1: right. So, so why 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 do you think that? <laughs> well, um Saint Benedict wanted everyone. He wanted superhumans. He wanted. Okay. People who could be robots, who could just think about God all day, who could just be devout all day. And he had impatience for human nature. So he, he didn't want people to laugh. He didn't want people to like gossip. He didn't want people to skip too fast and joyfully to service. Like he really wanted everyone to be serious all the time. And you can tell from my voice and the way that I, I come across that I am not that person. No. <laughs> I make a, a lot of jokes. Um, I think that it is important to be joyful. It's important to have a good chat with people. So I think that he would not appreciate how i have um talked about these things as being basically like that modern idea where it's okay to just be a human being and do your best. And he probably wouldn't like that because he always wanted us to be perfect. But okay. At the at the same time, my goal is different from Benedict's goal. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm not a monk and i don't think most people would be comfortable being monks because it is too hard. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah uh, we both Benedict and me, we are both helping, I, I hope people to achieve what their goals are for him. It was achieving salvation for me. It was just hopefully sharing this world with people in a way that would make it more accessible and more human. So yeah, our goals are different, and I do think he would hate the book. But <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> but regardless, yeah. I have mad respect for Saint Benedict and what he was trying to achieve. Yeah.
0: Okay. <laughs> well, the uh, I have to ask about the illustrations
1: mm-hmm. because
0: the illustrations in this book are just amazing. So. Can you, you talk to me a bit about
1: the illustrations? And I'm just going to mute myself because I can feel a cough coming on. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. So okay. the the illustrations are, I think, over 80 of them in full color. And those are from either medieval manuscripts or they are pictures of archaeological objects. So I think most of the the images you're talking about are ones that are from medieval manuscripts. And I think it's important to look at those because you can see how bright and colorful this world was. It's not just like that blue filter that we see on medieval uh, movies or anything like that. And then the book is absolutely filled with kind of faux woodcuts, modern mugs. Uh, yeah. Those are by Anna Lobanova, who is just just, in, just impressive. So, so incredibly talented. And when you're an author, you probably already know this you often don't get a say in what your book is going to look like so i made the suggestion that my work has always been kind of straddling the two worlds my logo for the five minute medievalist is a medieval person with a coffee and like a phone so yeah so i was i was thinking like this is the vibe that i have they already had chosen anna abbeville press had because of her wood cuts which are just beautiful and then so that was my suggestion to see like can we bring these two things together and she just has done it in an absolutely brilliant way i love these monks if i was to get a tattoo it would be one of these monks and uh, i should mention that i'm doing a similar book i'm in the copy edit, the end stages of it right now. It's going to come out in September called Chivalry and Courtesy Medieval Manners for a Modern World. And Anna is back again with her beautiful woodcuts bringing the modern and the medieval together. So I'm just so thrilled to have Anna working on this other book as well. That sounds fascinating too. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So
0: do you believe that if an individual follows some of the principles in this book that they and and try to eliminate some of the noise that you could find like you it's almost like you could find your your in your own integral
1: self. Oh what a question. I think that <laughs> it depends on how open you are to this. Okay. Um the the techniques that are in here so things like meditation um, minimalism gratitude service these are very extensively studied by science for example meditation has been just studied by all sorts of scientists and it is almost universally beneficial and the 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 results the positive results you can get from just a small small meditation habit will last for years and i can attest to this personally it's something that i have done i started meditating long before this book and uh, it has changed my life even today even though my practice is not as robust let's say as it was so these the reason that i bring the science in here is to show that this isn't just like you know hippie stuff yeah it can be shown to be very powerful of course the more you resist you know the the less you're going to get out of it but even things like structuring your thoughts and really being careful and, and cognizant about the stories that you tell yourself within your own mind like this is something that antarctic explorers that space explorers use to keep themselves sane and positive in very austere environments so you know the science supports that if you follow a lot of these techniques with an open mind then you should you should you know results may vary you should feel probably better about yourself so that's my hope i'm not i'm not prescribing things to people i think you have to walk your own path and this is the path that that I have walked and I you know, submit it for people's consideration. But the science does back up pretty much everything in here as saying that you can have a positive result from all of these things. I mean, I don't think anyone can argue with the fact that slowing down and taking some time for yourself makes you feel better, right? Yeah. So is that kind of thing where it's just caring for yourself and respecting yourself as a person and putting that time in to take care of your mental health and physical health. It's hard to argue with that. And that's kind of the point of the book is it's been true of humans for thousands of years. Yeah. Well, and when I look at the book, it's not,
0: it is not a self-help book. This is not what this book is about at all. Like it's, I find the history is fascinating. And uh, like, and how you, you draw parallels to our times now, you know, just like, I think it's chapter three, um, you know, the, the, the title is look inward. I mean, Mm -hmm. how can you go wrong with that? Just look (laughs) inward, you know, and just kind of look, maybe just become more aware, right? Of Mm -hmm. your surroundings and what you're doing. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So Anything you'd like to add, Danielle? Anything you'd like to add?
1: Well, I'm really grateful that you've read this so closely and that it seems to have resonated with you. That is very just inspiring to me. I'm very grateful that it has resonated with you that much. And I'm hoping that when people come to the book, that they will come for the history and that they will sit with it for a minute and see if there's anything in there that might give them a bit more peace. Like I think one of the things you were talking about was was just silence, right? If you give yourself the space to just be like who, find out who you are in that space and, and however it is that you want to live your life, you know, I hope that you do it in a way that is joyful and successful. But yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful that this was resonant with you. And I hope that other people who come to it enjoy the history and then maybe find something in it that will give them just a, just a smidge more peace in their lives. Well, yeah, because. We live in a time
0: where literally we have technology in the palm of our hand. We Mm -hmm. can do just about anything with that cell phone, okay? Right? And so much is exposed to us, I'll say, in the noise with that cell phone. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, you know you can't tell me that people are happier. Okay. <laughs> right. So, mm-hmm. you know, and I know I make it, my rule is I do not take that cell phone with me when I take the dogs for a walk. You know, mm-hmm. like I'm just, I do not want to be that plugged in.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And do you really need to be that plugged in? Right. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah yeah it's and like I say the illustrations are just beautiful so it did this book did resonate with me and I was excited excited it was one of those ones where it's like one of these podcasts where I'm thinking okay I want to ask her about every single chapter but
1: like, <laughs> you can't
0: do that
1: Sorry. so you've done a great job of that though you cut me on my toes <laughs> oh. <laughs> all
0: right Danielle well thank you so much so uh, you have a good day Thank you, you too.